For December 19th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 181, Macroeconomics Krugblivion. To the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink Alvin and the Chipmunks Ghost Protocol, a, uh, <laughs> a, uh, a sequel in which Dave disavows knowledge of the Chipmunks' uh, the Chipmunks' existence, and his his trademark cry is rendered as "Someone." <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of holiday holiday movie things, uh, w- including uh, the Mission Impossible movie and a little bit about the Dark Knight Rises trailer or preview or wh- whatever. Exactly what it is, is is open to debate. And uh, that trailer seems to be doing better at the box office than any of the actual films in uh, in release at the moment. So the the question for the panel this week, panel. If you could create a sequel in any franchise uh, called Ghost Protocol, what sequel <laughs> would you invoke the Ghost Protocol <laughs> on? Uh, first in the alphabet, drink because it's not Peter Fenzel. It is instead <laughs> Matthew Belinky. Okay, so in my younger days, I used to go to a, a sleepaway camp. Uh, uh, David Scheidner actually attended the same camp. What, what? Uh, in Long Long Lake, New York, uncreatively named uh, Long Lake Camp, uh, and that there was, you know, every every once in a while, like on Friday nights, there'd be a movie night, right. and for the kids older than 13, there'd be one movie, and for the kids younger than 13, there'd be another movie. And so I remember one particular night where the kids older than 13 got to watch Ghost, and the kids younger than 13 had to watch oh, yeah. Ghost Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was like, I don't it's know. Only, it's only three letters different, but but there's a yeah. world of difference in those three letters. And I would actually like like to see a Ghost Protocol version of both. I'd like to see Ghost colon Ghost Protocol, and also Ghost Dad colon Ghost Protocol. One, because first of all, Bill Cosby is a tremendous comedian. I think a very talented actor and really never had the film career he deserved to have. So I'd actually like to see him back on the big screen. Um, and, and I mean, also just because uh, I miss Patrick Swayze. I'm sorry he's dead. I'd like to see him in a movie again. I realize that it's, it's unlikely. But I think both movies would be about like, okay, now that the person is dead, uh, they have to get used to being a Ghost, and I think that there is some etiquette. Actually, I actually think that Beetlejuice, in a way, sort of touched the tip of a comedic iceberg, which is the idea that sort of like being dead is like there's like a whole new slew of of ropes to get the hang of, uh, and that I don't know. There, there's something very interesting, and it's a wonderful life. Not to get off on a tangent, where the idea that like Clarence has been dead for like four hundred or, or five hundred years, and he's still trying to get his wings. So he feels like you're dead, and it's like it's 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 not so much that like all your troubles are over. It's like you're on the bottom rung of a of a yeah. endlessly long ladder that's much more complicated and long than anything you could imagine during your mortal life. Yeah, and so that I like the idea that like you know it's like gee now that like Patrick Swayze has accepted the fact that he's dead and sort of moved on from Demi Moore. Uh, not all his problems are over, that he has to learn the ghost protocol and sort of get the hang of the afterlife. Um, so I don't know. That, 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 that's what I'd like to see. Uh, Patrick Swayze, I'd love to have that second season of The Beast if you're still out there somewhere. 
Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter Fenzel, you, you are next. All right. So when I was trying to explain why I found the subtitle Ghost Protocol funny uh, to a young lady, um, I was I was trying to explain. It's like, yeah, it's like Tom Clancy, Ghost Recon or Splinter Cell, right? It's like you basically take something that is a story and then you give it night vision goggles, right? And you like, and you like, you have to be like, where's the package? Like you have to get the package. Like you're off the list. And it's like all about like, uh, like sneaking around and repelling off of things and like just doing like commando stuff in like a very high tech sort of way. Right. And then I thought ghost protocol was really funny because you could just like, you just do that. To a regular movie, and it's sort of like uh, so. It's almost it's like a, a Call of Duty kind of thing where it's like there's the regular version where if it's just a guy with a regular gun, but then there's like the ghost version where he has like he has like lasers and he has like uh, like night vision goggles. So what I tried to explain in terms of would, was uh, the Notebook Ghost Protocol. Like if you if you had the movie The Notebook Ghost Protocol, like the only difference would be that like Ryan Gosling would be like in the water, like and he would be like lurking offshore and he'd be like phone into the to the recon point to be like i tried to send you messages through the channel like you weren't on the scrambled channel like all the time but i tried to send the messages every day right and it's like you missed the rendezvous point uh, it all be like very tense and very uh but i just like he, at the you know, at the end he doesn't like he comes out and he's in like a full-on frog suit right with like a like a water jet propulsion like zodiac module and you can just like i don't know, I, I don't know. there's something very captivating to me about like a romance ghost protocol there, <laughs> there was something lazy about like throwing the word ghost into the title of like your espionage like like post 1990 pre-1990 it was throwing any greek word in there like you know the omega continuum yeah. <laughs> that, that's the Robert Ludlum formula of like writing right. an espionage novel, but like post like, post Tom Clancy, it was like ghost something, right? Right, 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 right. And then the equivalent in bad action franchises is the word annihilation, or like, <laughs> like Mortal Kombat, annihilation, oblivion. You know, the Elder Scrolls, oblivion. Like it doesn't mean anything. Super Mario Brothers, oblivion, oblivion, Ghost Protocol. Where it's like who has like a sniper rifle and it's like he's jump kicking people, and Luigi is like a freaking is like a freaking helicopter pilot. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that like is is cleverly raised by Ghost Protocol. That no matter how secret and like crazy uh, obscure your sort of secret agency is, there's always a way to make it more secret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it's I def- turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Love Actually this weekend again, and I'd love to see Love Actually Ghost Protocol, where they're like they're all in the same world, but they like go entirely undetected by each other. Like, it's like all these different love stories that are happening in the same locations via stealth. Like so, you can see it in infrared, but you can't see it through the visual spectrum. Um, well, that 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 uh, answer, Pete, certainly comment. Uh, it counted as Fenzel. Annihilation. Annihilation. <laughs> Oblivion. Ghost protocol. Omega factor. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the uh, to the other factor, the Mark Lee factor. Uh, it's Mark Lee. Ghost Bolivian. <laughs> <laughs> why, why? Why? Thank you. I think. Um, I, I, 
I bet somebody's thinking this already. So I'm going to go ahead and steal this Ghostbusters Ghost Protocol, right? <laughs> this this becomes one of two things. One, the Ghostbusters um, sort of are, are pinned as uh, as scapegoats for some a mission gone awry, and they are disavowed by whatever authorities by the New York Police Department, and they disband and are forced to go underground to fight ghosts. So that's one <laughs> way to do it. The other way, the far more interesting way, is actually when the Ghostbusters die and they become ghosts. And they have to deal with their new existence as ghosts, the things that they once bust, which they once busted. <laughs> I see this as a really existential navel gazing yeah, yeah, uh, examination. Right, a dark indie film in which they call their very core beliefs into question. <laughs> and there's you there's know? there's definitely a scene in it where all the ghosts are sitting around, uh, you know, the ghost coffee table, uh, having a ghost conversation, and one turns to the uh, former Ghostbuster and says, "Aha, the Buster has become the Bust E." <laughs> Uh, it is like an economic tale of like you know social justice issues where the ghostbusters realize the like imperial impression that they've been putting on the spirit world through their superior technology right to try to like exploit them to create like a an yeah environment. You, you, you know like 99 percent of the people who have ever lived are currently dead it's yeah, why, true. Should, why should the one percent of all people hold yeah. on to possessions and be allowed to experience the world? Like ninety nine percent of the ghosts are busted by one percent of the Ghostbusters. It's so, fair, you know. Yeah. We should. Yeah, it's like occupy the containment union, huh? Yeah. So, the, Mark, there is another way to go with your movie, which is that Ghostbusters Ghost Protocol is actually a nineteen fifties style training film uh, that new Ghostbusters watch when they're you know they get their job as the uh, you know the Ghostbusters. It's like ah. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like they have the uh, the HR orientation. They sit through the risk management and sexual harassment seminar. And then finally, <laughs> which is basically don't hit on Sigourney Weaver. And then it's it's <laughs> and then they're exposed to the ghost protocol. And it's like this very awkward, stilted black and white uh, film starring like Rick Moranis's character and Egon, you know, um, <laughs> and, like, a lot of Egon. Yeah. And, he, like, like Rick Moranis is just like wearing a sheet. <laughs> remember don't cross the streams <laughs> if someone asks you if you're a god say yes if someone asks you where is the bathroom indicate that it's down the street to the left. employees must you, wash their hands at all times after using the restroom if someone asks you if you'd like to join a union report them to your your manager and <laughs> HR personnel. <laughs> yeah. uh, Keymaster is different. That's a different kind of busting, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> like Ghostbusters, like Celestial Pinkerton unit. It's the Ghost Riot Busters. Is what yeah, exactly. yeah. Then there's then there's the Ghost Bussers where the school district gets ghosts from out of town. Never. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, requires the ghosts to like mix to integrate their schools. That's what you're talking about. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm wow. sorry. All ghosts are created equal. You know who else is created more than equal? Josh McNeil, Oblivion. Uh, so i think the the there are two that i'd like to see one is ghost rider ghost road protocol where he has to learn how to drive safely having gotten too many speeding tickets (laughs) are we talking Um, about the pbs show ghost rider i mean it's ghost rider he was saying okay i was sorry i watched too much pbs Nicholas, nicholas cage with his head on fire enduring like a saturday of driving school um 
I think I think could be actually far superior than the sequel. That's I think that out. might be a documentary. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, uh, wait! In New York City, no turn on red. Wait, looks hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the other one I, uh, I would like to see would be uh, Hamlet Ghost Protocol. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is after all the characters are dead, and it's pretty much just like the play Hamlet, because, you know, none of them is happier. None of them has found peace in the afterlife. They're still at each other's throats the whole time. Oh, I exactly. thought it was going to be like a myth, like a was it a chasing La Mancha kind of movie about playing Hamlet's go uh, Hamlet's father's ghost, like in the show, like it's uh, what's his artistic experience. But no, Josh, what did you see the Hamlet Ghost Protocol as? Well, it's not really you know the, in, in Hamlet we we learn a lot about sort of uh, the courtly life of Denmark. Uh, you know, we know that they throw plays there in the Mead Hall and all of that. And I just I'd, I'd like to see just sort of like it's basically just uh, a sort of a you know, prequel where instead of everything being terrible, it's just sort of about the manners of Hamlet. Um, and you know, the ghost of Hamlet's father, instead of saying, you know, the serpent did that, that did sting my father's life. Now where's his crown is like Hamlet, you know, use the salad fork. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. And just instructs him. Very important. Yeah. It is. So. <laughs> Dave Schechner, you are next. Schechner oblivion. Oblivion, <laughs> Schechner, Omicron, Delta, Decimation. Um, well, I just want to be, before I actually give my answer, uh, I want to say that like I actually went to high school. In addition to knowing Bolinky as a as a ten year old, uh, I went to high school with a guy named Joey Shea, who was in the PBS series Ghost Rider. Uh, wow. And and he he was completely in love with himself, and and sadly still, uh, all of the girls in my school were also in love with him. So. You know, a little bit of angst there. But, you know, I'm, I'm a powerful scientist now. What have you got, Joey Shea? Uh, <laughs> Wait, Schechner, didn't you also go to school with one of the Queer Eye for the Straight Guy dudes? Yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> uh, but, but he's a pretty cool guy. He's a friend of mine, uh, David J. Rodriguez, who just goes by J. Rodriguez these days. Yeah, he uh, was the was, style. Yeah, yeah. He was the style dude. He was also recently um, uh, Wayne Brady's uh, husband on an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Oh, wow. So there you go. So, Joey Shea, you suck. J. Rodriguez, you know, keep on representing, boy. He was uh, okay. one of the more useful queer eyes that, like, some of them would, like, redo your whole wardrobe and, like, you know, fix your apartment. And, like, one of them would just teach you how to use, like, a, like a blowtorch to make creme brulee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to make creme brulee. Like, this is not, you know. I would occasionally fall asleep during queer eye and wake up during, like, a, you know, junkyard wars. And, you know, my half asleep mind would not be able to separate the two. Um, <laughs> many an embarrassing first date, let me tell you. Junkyard <laughs> oblivion. <laughs> The guy Schechner knows would be like play shot day, right? And like she, this is really cool music, and then uh, and, and then she'll be totally like melting. Like I saw a queer eye for the for the straight guy where he where Jay Rodriguez uh, counseled um, a, a very painfully shy person to like look the person you're talking to in the eye. You know, like eye contact is is important for communication. If you stare at your feet, then they'll think you're not confident, uh, and that was the sum total of his contribution. <laughs> yeah. Is it, can we have a queer eye for the straight guy ghost protocol? Is that like <laughs> we did? They like it's like we need an immediate extraction from this. this yeah. the, the, the guy, the guy is like so desperately beyond helping that they just decide to disappear him. <laughs> he's, he's done. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, your complete collection of Mama's Family VHSs means that you're going to have to go off the grid. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, right. so every, everyone everyone went ghost style on their answer, and and just to be different, uh, I'm and to be as offensive as humanly possible, I'm going to go with uh, ghost protocols of the orders of the Elder of Zion, <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's just a uh, it's it's just a documentary about Mossad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> that that is dave schechner i suppose it was uh i suppose it was me my my original idea was uh casper the friendly ghost protocol uh nice nice. that's that is a wheel of fortune clue that that is a uh, that is true which is um the, uh, which is, uh, I imagined it as Casper learning the ropes as a, as a new uh, ghost, and the fact that he's a child is, um, which someone pointed out on Overthinking It, I think, right? Like, that Casper the Friendly Ghost is a very dark thing, because, like... Well, the live-action movie, the cartoon is not so dark. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, in the live-action movie, it's, it's like, do you, do you find out how Casper died? Oh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a tragically dead child. It's, it's really, it's... it's uh-huh. Ill-advised the live-action movie on many levels, mm-hmm. except for like on the level of Bill Paxton's agent or Bill Pullman. Yeah, Bill <laughs> Pullman. Somebody remember Bill Pullman. Which, it's Bill Pullman. It's not I'm Bill sorry, I continually get those two confused, and, and, and no jury in the world can convict me. No, that's fine. One one is celebrating your Independence Day, and the other one is marrying four of you and bringing you all into a house. I so. see no difference. I just proved the opposite of Independence yeah. Day, right? Yeah, yeah is, pretty much. That it's is like extremely Codependence Day. Day. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Or as, yeah, or as we said in a, in a previous podcast title, Twilight celebrates your Dependence Day. Yeah. <laughs> huh? So you guys actually you guys actually saw Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, right? Have we gone through every? But he's ghost protocol. No, no, I haven't. I haven't. I, I, I don't think I can do Casper the Friendly Ghost Protocol because because oh, okay. Belinky already called uh, Ghost Protocol. So I'm going. I'm going to return to uh, a series of movies that I know well and that I am uh, fond of and that I turn to when whenever things get tough for me on this podcast, which is the Police Academy series of movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I propose Police Academy Ghost Protocol, which is where the uh, the police have to uh, pretend that they're not there in the uh, in the city, or maybe the police. Police Academy pretends it's not there. That is to say, the ranks of police are filled with new recruits. But where are they being trained? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's Police it's Academy. It's like a film about Al-Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It, it does get kind of dark, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so Mark, yeah, Mark and I saw Ghost Protocol, and one of the most remarkable things about Ghost Protocol was that at the beginning of Ghost Protocol, there was a, uh, a trailer for The Dark Knight Rises, which had a little prologue, a little bit of, of uh, uh, a film that, that Mark called Bane on a Plane. <laughs> I've had right. it with this mother effing Bane on this mother effing plane. Right. And Mark, do you want to describe that? I mean, I suppose it's a, it's a trailer. It's not like a spoiler to, to describe what happens in, in I- that trailer right no you, you can't really call it a trailer either because uh you know, the traditional definition of a trailer is that gives you an overview of what's uh, what the movie is about yeah it's an ad for the movie rather than just being a sequence from the movie right which which the uh the 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 dark knight rises uh you know segment that we saw that's what it is it's a segment from the movie not uh you know an ad for it right prologue right. is what the internet is calling it sure and that's i guess that's an apt way to, to describe it um i'm not going to get into too much detail because it's kind of hard to describe it's a very elaborate action sequence which involves two planes and like sawing the plane in half and then uh like bane like being captured and then being like rescued by his henchmen 
from the plane. The whole thing is actually very difficult to understand because Bangkok's behind a mask. Right, and <laughs> and the, understand what I don't know. I don't know if this was true of you, but um, in my uh, IMAX theater, the you know thousands of kilowatts of sound, thousands of thousands of watts of sound or whatever. That's megawatts, I guess. I guess uh, we're getting up to the gigawatt territory. Um, the <laughs> gigawatts. The, yeah, it was like audio oblivion in my movie theater. And, like, it's, it's not just that I couldn't understand what Bane was saying because he was talking behind a mask. Uh, I couldn't understand what ev- everybody was saying because there was this thunderous crunching of metal on metal as the, you know, as two planes engaged in battle uh, in the sky so um and not just that it was after, after uh, that sequence is over and then it like sort of becomes a bit of a more trailer-esque um, and the 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 pulsing batman soundtrack comes in you know, i thought like the speakers were being seriously overloaded <laughs> it's like something doesn't sound right here yeah no it's like they were over modulating the sound system which you're really not supposed to do in one of those expensive theaters like mark what if you don't mind saying what what did your uh imax ticket to uh ghost protocol cost I, and like, i'll say keep i'll in say mind, keep in mind it's new york city it cost uh, like 1950 yeah mine was almost 20 bucks too and the uh and um that was for the uh i ended up i ended up uh not buying at that theater and actually going to a different theater. Are you all familiar with the fake IMAX controversy? Yeah, yes, yeah, I've explained it to the, to the. No, yeah, no, no, like, no, IMAX used to be really, really big, and now it's like it's unclear what it means. Well, right. So, but it, it used to be like you know gigantic, and now it's merely monstrous. <laughs> Maybe it's just that I've gotten bigger. <laughs> yeah. You have put on a lot of weight. Play. This is actually an intervention yeah. about your eating. <laughs> it's um. Yeah, well, so IMAX was a film format that used 70 millimeter film and had this just massive uh, negative in this um, and projected it onto a screen that was, you know, as long as an aircraft carrier or something like that. That if you were sitting in a prime prime spot, it fills your uh, your entire field of, of vision. And like you remember that from, um, you know, from days going to natural history museums and things like that, right? The Smithsonian, yeah. Yeah, sure. They had, yeah, they had one there, and they had one, like, in L.A. They had one at, like, the Museum of Natural History or, you know, something like that. There's, you know, it's, like, a special occasion to go to an IMAX movie, right? Yeah. So what, ha- what happened is that... Um, uh, what happened is that a- AMC and IMAX um, got into a... Uh, you know, got into a, a an agreement where they marketed the IMAX name uh, for a digital format that that like was merely very large rather than gigantic. So if you go to it's um it's on uh, Aziz Ansari's Tumblr. He he went to an IMAX uh, that was not really an IMAX, and he you know flew into a rage, and you know uh, he so blogged about it. And he uh, he uh, if you Google fake IMAX, it's probably the first thing that comes up. So whereas the um, the you know Lincoln Square IMAX is ninety seven feet high, the Empire twenty AMC Empire twenty five IMAX is uh, merely fifty feet high, or fifty five or fifty eight or something. It's a very small graphic. He has he has here. And so that it's not, you know, it's not gargantuan. So I, I sought out a real IMAX uh, theater 
that was showing it on seventy <laughs> you, mil, on seventy millimeter film, uh, you, and that you, was you in fact all hipster on the IMAX. Yeah, exactly. I went I went analog IMAX. <laughs> I, I did. They, it was a vinyl soundtrack. It was. Uh, <laughs> you know, it it just fills your complete your complete field of vision so much more authentically. Right. Absolutely. So, so the whole the whole sound system was on a player piano. Is that yeah. what this was? That's it. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And we were served artisanal cocktails. I mean, I got an old fashioned, and like the bartender took <laughs> took two hours to just make the bitters. You know, yeah. he made the would bitters you, uh, himself, and then would you, you know, care? Would you would you <laughs> would you care for some heirloom popcorn, sir? <laughs> or get yeah, uh, you know, popped in popped in uh, uh, you know a bunch of of uh, artisanal oils that are refined in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's just like pop maze something. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I saw I saw it on the uh, on the the big IMAX and the um, the uh, the. It's really like so. Not everything is shot in that big square seventy millimeter IMAX format. Some of it is merely widescreen. So it's funny. It's like you're watching a movie that, that's uh, this. The real IMAX screen is square. So it's like you're watching a movie that is. Um, uh, that's letterboxed on an old four by three television and there are black bars at the top and the bottom of the IMAX screen. Uh, and then for certain action sequences or like big panoramic establishing shots or things like this that were shot, uh, actually on IMAX film, um, it, it, uh, it expands and suddenly blows up and you're in this, you know, perceptual, uh, uh, kaleidoscopic panoramic, um, oblivion of a, uh, you know, of a, <laughs> Of a visual experience, and did you I, um, find it disruptive? No, I I found it awesome. I did party immoderately last night, though. So I like as I was watching the matinee, I was not fully recovered from last night's immoderation, and uh, I I nearly lost my artisanal popcorn all over the hand woven Persian rug at my hipster theater. Yeah, <laughs> because of the switching, the, because of the amazing panoramic vistas. Yeah, yeah, because it. because like really, my whole field of vision was full of this giant, you know, hundred feet high thing that was like shaking and, and sweeping, and Tom Cruise was was uh, you know leaping elegant arabesques uh, on the you know Burj Khalifa and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> that was an amazing string of of, of words you just put together. So I'll, I'll just add to that. Yes. The, the IMAX effect is astounding. Right. When you see it in real IMAX screen, which I did, uh, the aforementioned Lincoln Square in New York City is, I think, the only uh, the real IMAX theater in New York City. Um, and I had the, uh, the the privilege of seeing it there. It was, it was, uh, it was astounding. Um, I, I don't know what else we want to talk about, the, the technical aspects of this. Or should we switch over a little bit to some of the, maybe the political aspects of the ghost emission, possible ghost protocol? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. So I guess there's a couple of things to talk about in this realm. One is the what I referred to earlier as the facile otherification of Russia mm-hmm. in this, um, which I think is, is kind of – I think Russia as a bad guy maybe is, is, is resurging a little bit What with Russia as a bad guy resurging a little bit in the real world. In, just, in, in the filmic world well they're not totally the bad guy i don't want to get into the, the details because not everybody's seen the movie and uh, i think this will be a spoiler free discussion of it might as well it's not, the, the not that there's a whole lot not there's a whole lot to spoil but right, um, yeah. but anyway uh, so there, I, I, there there is a mission it seems impossible turns out not but, to be quite impossible it's highly oh, highly improbable yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, it, it it is more mission improbable. There is a very great line at the end, which we uh, won't spoil, but which is um, 
uh, you can probably guess what Tom Cruise says at the very end of the movie. But uh, it is it is a great payoff. So we won't we won't spoil it. Yeah. So so on the note of the other uh, um, the facile otherification of Russia, um, one of the ways that this comes out uh, easily in film is through music. And Matt, I don't know if you had the same uh, take on this, but I was really blown away by the um, what's the guy's name, Michael Giancino, um, the the composer's uh, score for this, and like his like soaring epic Russian theme uh-huh. with like, the uh, with the pounding male voice Russian Red Army choir. Right? Yeah, it was. It was like, like Hunt for Red October, Come Again. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I thought. I mean, I thought that that. But I, look, if you. If you think of the if you think of the plot of the movie it's the the um the the villain in the movie is actually not not Russian though the Americans are set up against the Russians and like American Russian tensions are very high but it looks like they actually did some filming in Russia and you can't like you can't just totally rip on Russia um and you know and get their okay to film in their country and and so the the bad guy is like a stateless terrorist who happens who is played by a Swedish actor and he he happens to be Swedish in the the uh the movie and he is he is that that scariest of all professions a professor <laughs> so like fight the real enemy yeah <laughs> it's like when it's like alfred molina in tomb raider 2 like having fist fights with lara croft as like an archaeology professor and not sure. like an indiana jones one like the kind of one that you don't want to go to office hours because they're going to be too tedious <laughs> <laughs> the other big movie this week was sherlock holmes in which he fights james moriarty the professor of crime professor moriarty, yeah. <laughs> well we're yeah. going to talk about that later too so yeah the, uh, uh, well, it's just interesting that you know the the professors are so particularly virulent these days. Yeah. Professor! <laughs> Finally being portrayed in an accurate light. Yes. <laughs> that is right. my career goal. So Matt, you're, good. you're getting to what I was, uh, what was, was moving towards. Is Professor that really Oblivion. Is- <laughs> Sorry, I'm just gonna, you know, the whole rest of the episode, I'm just gonna tack that on to everything. <laughs> Literature 145, The American Experience, Annihilation. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost protocol. <laughs> actually, I give it, give it twenty years. That that course will actually appear. I actually I took a course in college that was like the American novel since nineteen forty five, and that that class would be aptly titled the American novel since nineteen forty five annihilation because that's all that the American novel seems to do after nineteen forty five. Oblivion. Oblivion. Nuclear annihilation. <laughs> uh, sorry, oh, okay. Mark. So this, where I was going is that, yes, you are correct. Like, this movie's not about states against each other. This is really about non-state actors doing what states cannot do. Um, both the, the crazy scientists as well which as is, the, Which is annihilation. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so both the crazy professor, e- evil guy, is a non-state actor. IMF... The Mission Impossible team becomes a non-state actor because they have been ghost protocoled, right? They are, they have gone rogue, and like you know, the director, the secretary of the IMF, basically says like, uh, you know, sorry guys, you know, we've been ghost protocoled, but you guys run off and go save the world on your own because you know us, you know, the the, the official organs of power and, and and policy cannot do it on our own. Yeah, although I I think it's I I did not see the most recent movie, but as far as I could tell, 
three out of the four Mission Impossible movies, uh, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, is accused of high treason and is hunted down by his own government and has to sort of work to clear his name and catch the real bad guys. In the first movie, he very famously has to break into the CIA headquarters, and that's the scene where he's suspended from the ceiling. Right. Um, and in the second movie, I, I believe he is never accused of treason, but the, the third one... Uh, he, um, like Lawrence Fishburne takes him in and then he breaks out. And so it's, it's not particularly novel, the idea that he has to sort of like work without any official backing. And in fact, sort of like has to avoid being hunted down by his own coworkers. I mean, that's the idea of the, of the IMF anyway, right? Not the international monetary fund, but rather (laughs) (laughs) spoilers. The idea there is you get like a, yeah, you get a a PhD in, 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 you know, macroeconomic, uh, international macroeconomic (laughs) development. And then like the the rest of the economics department, it just like hunts you for sport. That's really how the IMF works. The most, the most dangerous game of all, a statistician. Exactly, exactly. It's like Gary Busey and Paul Krugman on an ATV coming after you. <laughs> my, dark, my darkest nightmares have looked exactly like that. <laughs> Macroeconomics, Krug Bolivian. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the, the IMF, uh, you know, the IMF, that's an organization with a lot of professors in it, I'm just saying. Uh, the idea of the impossible mission force is that, that they are the ones who can do, the, states are too constrained by, you know, their many responsibilities and by the kind of, you know, I don't know, uh, multiple constituencies that they have to serve and the fact that they can't, you know, it's, it's okay that everyone knows something, everyone knows, uh, that a country did something, as long as officially, you know, it, we, we have it on the books that the country wasn't involved in this. And that's the idea of the impossible mission force, the idea that, like, a, a, a state needs a, a set of non-state actors in order to, like, make the sausage of, of global politics, right? Mm. Yeah, and now, this is not a novel thing in movies, right? We've been right. seeing this for a long no, time. I, I think mean, it's just notable to, to call out because, like, that's really what's what's going on. And the know? the idea, yeah, I mean, and that like the fact that the villain is not is not like R- Russia or something. The fact that the you know the villain is uh, is more or less a, a a crazy person actually kind of reflects um, the fact that the movie business, and this is something Pete has talked about on the podcast before, the movie business is actually like. Uh, one of these countries now that has so many interests around the globe that it can't you can't really offend anybody. You can't really make anybody the bad guy. And so it's just a, you know, the bad guy is just a maniacal individual who happens to have um, beliefs that, you know, as, as you and a PhD. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, the root of all, the root of all evil is the doctor of philo- doctorate of philosophy. I mean, they're not even real doctors, right, Dave? So, uh, I'm not, won't stop me from pretending to be one though <laughs> so so wait so on this day on this like time of year that is a time of religious holidays a variety of different historical faiths from mithras and christianity and others um can i ask a slightly out of season question which is why is this mission impossible movie different from all other mission impossible movies? <laughs> <laughs> hey, peter 
are you the youngest in our group? Are you the one who's supposed to say that question? <laughs> uh, whatever it is, but the guy who's supposed to come into this empty chair next to me hasn't shown up yet. So um, uh, right. <laughs> I hit his lunch in punishment. But anyway, um, <laughs> you'll get a shiny quarter if you find it. By the way, <laughs> fair enough. But yeah, no. But so, what makes this? I mean, is this already been addressed? Like, why is this movie different from the other Mission Impossible movies? Isn't the, the director is somebody particularly special, right? Like, we were kind of psyched for this. The director is. And I, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's good. I mean, I'm sorry, we're we're talking about it, and we don't we don't get really ever like evaluative on our uh, in That's our analysis. Well, it's boring. It's a, it, it's a good movie. That. It's not boring. It doesn't fall. I mean, it has sort of different registers. The action sequences are great. They're enough unlike each other that you're not sort of bored. Like I, you know, Sherlock Holmes, which I think we're going to talk about on a different show. The um, uh, I'll, you know, I'll just say now when the final, they went to like, uh, beat the final boss in Sherlock Holmes. I, um, I was like, oh my God, does this movie have another act? Because Sherlock yeah. Holmes was sort of like relentless and never sort of stopped to take, to take a breath and let you care about the characters. The, um, the, the Brad Bird directed, uh, you know, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol at least slows down enough that the, you know, there is an idea that the characters, there's a gesture towards the characters having some kind of interiority and some kind of motivation, at, you know, and the story is happening the way it's happening for a reason and not just as the, the, you know, most bare, uh, of armatures on which to hang, um, you know, action sequences, which is a little more Sherlock Holmes, uh, which is um, a shame because it's a waste of a great actor in Robert Downey Jr. But uh, so it is, I mean, it is good. It's it's a good story. It sort of holds your attention. It, You know what I mean? It's like, it's two hours and eight minutes where you won't think about your troubles. And that's not nothing. Mm-hmm. How about Academy Award winner Jeremy Renner in this one? Yeah, he's he's great. I you know, um there is a uh, there are multiple uh he he's great and he's he's sort of brooding and kind of troubled as you'd expect looking at his at his film career, you know what I mean? Uh mm-hmm. he he uh is an IMF agent who has a past uh and is um you know haunted by it. And uh, there, there actually are there are sequences where he's like, it's not exactly diffusing a bomb, but there are sequences when he's like doing something with electronics where I thought of, um, oh, what is it? Uh, the, the Iraq movie. It's Lethal Weapon Hurt, in Iraq. Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Or Lethal Weapon 5, if you will. And mm. the, the <laughs> <laughs> Ghost Protocol. <laughs> right, where, where a, uh, yeah, where a crazy guy and his black sidekick, uh, you know, I don't know, self-crimes. The, um, Whoa. <laughs> Just to clarify, is, is Ving Rhames not in this movie? He shows up at the, he, uh, he shows up at the end. Okay. Oh, is that? Because he's sort of been the sidekick for for the three previous Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, and it's uh, there's a little conversation with him in the last scene, but no, he's not in doing the action or or anything like that. All right, but um, you know, yeah, no, it's it's satisfying, and and Brad Bird is is one of the Pixar directors, like one of the kind of Pixar brain trust. Right, he he did the huh. the Incredibles, and earlier in his career, he was the animation supervisor for The Simpsons back when like we cared about it in like the early seasons. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about Brad Bird? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and how he was like wrote The Iron Giant and directed yeah, the, Iron the Iron Giant. Giant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I was wondering if his like mark is on it anywhere, if it feels like a movie of his or whether it's just sort of like it's close enough to the Mission Impossible franchise or it's close enough to a Tom Cruise action movie that that, that auteurship is not um visible. I'll say that uh the, the parts that reminded me most of Brad Bird, at least the Pixar output 
of Brad Bird, and you can add to that, add to that The Simpsons as well. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, came through in this Mission Impossible movie through Simon Pegg. Through <clears throat> that is to say, like the whimsical aspects of a Pixar movie uh, were embodied by uh, the Simon Pegg comic relief, which I thought was uh, ec- ec- extremely well done. I don't so know. There's like you, a desperately uh, sad montage that lasts for ten minutes at the beginning of the movie and makes everybody cry, and then like, <laughs> <laughs> like, there's not. But you, you mentioned that, but that was like uh, in some ways like very out of character, not very out of character, but very unique among the the Pixar oeuvre, is it not? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's unique among I think. Uh, at least like you know animated movies mostly targeted children well i mean that that's what makes pixar unique right is that they don't just target their animated movies to children it's you know it it's interesting with this movie i started thinking about stakes a little bit it's it's so hard (laughs) just made you hungry did it yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah fortunately there's a fortunately there are steak artisans waiting uh, you know i mean (laughs) At a, at a hardwood charcoal grill right outside the theater. Um, they ra- you know, they raised the beef in Brooklyn. They, you know, it's not really a porterhouse. It's just a big T-bone. AMC is lying to you. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's hard to, like, it's hard to make you care about, about the stakes in any of these movies. And the... the um, uh, right, like you know, a madman is going to blow up the world. Okay, we you know we've seen it before. Like the madman is going to cause the world to be to be blown up. Well, okay, we've seen that before. It's you know, like next, it's going to be induced to blow up by a madman. Right, that's actually closer to the stakes in this movie. It's like the world is going to be induced to blow itself up uh, by a you know by the sort of at the promptings of a, of a madman. And you know. That- X-Men first class. <laughs> that was the core. No, that's different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's blown up, literally. But the, um, but, uh, you know, how do you, so how do you make, how do you make people care? I mean, how do you make the movie more than, than just kind of an excuse to hang a bunch of action sequences on this, you know, armature of a plot? And I, I think you have to do it by making us care about the characters. And that's the, you know, by, by sort of doing this. Uh, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit Law and Order SV you syndrome where you know where you get a like a cheesy psychological monologue um about you know something traumatic happened in the past and you know that's why i became a cop that's why i became a member of the a director of the international monetary fund um i was just a bo- i was just a boy when my parents were killed by a failure to accurately quote the measurement error <laughs> now i'm Justice. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to make a 3D, I have to plot it. It's hard to graph economic indicators when you're off the grid. You have to kind of eyeball it. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah, but the, so this idea, I mean, I think this is a new thing. This idea, I mean, that is this is a thing that's developed in the recent crop of of movies. The idea of kind of stateless uh stateless actors. Um and it, I think it it uh has to do with globalization and our kind of conception of the world as a single uh very complex system and the kind of the the decreasing role of of 
the decreasing role of nationalism in the way that we think about uh, the way that we think about these these things. And, it, you know, it, it goes hand in hand with the globalization of the movie industry and the use of kind of big stars like Tom Cruise to open movies worldwide uh, and also sort of international locales not who, here included, not just because they um, they kind of give a sense of the exotic as they did in in James Bond movies, but uh, but because like a lot of the audience for these movies, we can expect to be in this. Um, uh, we can expect to be at these locales, you know what I mean? To be in Russia or to be in India where, uh, where the last act of the movie takes place. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, you can, you really can't call anyone, can't call anyone bad anymore, at least not in a movie that costs many hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Oh, this, this reminds me of the infamous red Dawn remake. I don't know if we brought this up on the podcast before, but uh, the rumor on the street uh, on the internet was that they filmed an entire Red Dawn remake and the enemy was China, as in like the Chinese, you know, come and invade uh, suburban Michigan. Sure. Um, and uh, they they never released it. Um, they went back and they replaced the Chinese with North Koreans, as in like like digitally airbrushed uh, the insignia. In the movie, and I maybe looped in some extra dialogue to turn the Chinese into North Koreans, and they were supposed to release that. That cut, I think, is still sitting somewhere in a studio vault somewhere. But at least that was a word in the street because they didn't want to offend uh, the enormous Chinese market uh, for that movie or any other movies they wanted to make. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean, even putting that aside, there the ch- is a no. You go, you go ahead, Pete. Does having the Chinese successfully in the United States actually upset the Chinese market? Yeah, like, well, yeah. yeah I feel like that could like, sell. Wow, we conquered the United States. <laughs> yeah. No, because they don't do it like w- fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> it takes too long. <laughs> like, my son conquered the United States in two days. Yeah, so because we don't say that the Chinese already control the United States, we have to assume they have to conquer it, right? And that's what yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> sorry, but yeah. So so um so so can I ask? Is this movie? I mean, when I hear the Ghost Protocol, just to jump back to what I heard before about the Ghost Protocol, does this movie fetishize like stealth commando technology in the way that the title seems to indicate that it might? What do you, what um, do you mean by it, stealth commando technology? Oh, like like sort of speed repelling kits that get you in through the windows of skyscrapers where you like cut a hole with a laser torch. Like the, right? the, yes. the best thing oh, about yes, oh my god, awesome. <laughs> there's, yeah, there, there's all kinds of technology. But actually, I think one of the one of the interesting things about technology in this movie is how unreliable it is, um, okay. and and how kind of low tech low tech methods uh, seem to be seem to be preferred. Like there's a there's a, a meeting at which, you know, they were supposed to dress up in masks, but the masks got effed up along the way. And so they just have to go in as um, as Tom Cruise and hot sidekick. Oh, I forget. Who's the hot, hot sidekick in this movie? Uh, Simon Pegg. Simon, yeah, Simon Pegg. Pegg. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Pete. <laughs> Sorry. It's interesting you mentioned that, Matt, because uh, that, that aspect of the movie is definitely there. And I definitely appreciate it. Um, but it still falls back on... Um, on the very common trope of the hacker very easily gaining control to security cameras and elevators in the building. Sure. 
in, in a way that is that just like we just accept that? I mean, I, would think you know that what? I as, think as audiences become more technically sophisticated and, and you know are starting to learn more about how you know cybersecurity and things actually work, that they would uh, question those things more, or at least like devote more time to showing how Simon Pegg actually hacks into the security cameras. I've got um I've got a I've got a yeah I was thinking about that a lot especially since there seems to be like uh there seems to be a, a little bit a couple instances of homage to the original server room seen in the first Mission Impossible movie where you, Simon Pegg says to Tom Cruise you know you got to break into the server room and Tom Cruise looks at him and says server room you know what I mean as though uh, like yeah. uh, it, it's like we're really gonna do this scene again but that then it uh, you know it ends up with Tom Cruise climbing up the outside of a building using only these you know unreliable sticky gloves to uh hold himself on top of the tallest building in dubai and uh um it's and like and then there's a second server room sequence later in the movie where jeremy renner breaks into a a different server room and i i think it's just that mark it's that the the idea of there being a server room it's not a special thing for just the cia anymore everything has a server room right like what is the building that they're in it's a hotel they have to break into the server room in the hotel, uh, and the, the server room in the hotel has, like, multiple levels of military-grade encryption, which is why they can't just, like, do it over the internet or something. Um, that- Matt, is the, is the overthinking it server room in your yes. apartment fully secure? <laughs> <laughs> I think the overthinking it server room is actually in Ann Arbor, Michigan, somewhere, and it actually, overthinking it does live in a server room that looks like you'd expect a server room to, uh, to look. Well, I would love to if it's in visit. Michigan, in that case, we need to defend it against the Soviets slash Chinese slash Koreans. <laughs> North guys, Korean. guys, speaking of North Korea, this just in, in the last, like, five minutes, uh, Kim Jong-il is dead. What? I'm Whoa. sorry. I know it's Christmas. Uh, guys. Oh, did it. So wait, so yes. is he, he going to show up in the, uh, in the Oscar film reel this year? Because you know, of all the movies that he, he made starring himself. The puppets from Team America. Sure, yeah, that too. You got, I'm, I'm actually having a moment here. You guys keep, keep talking. <laughs> this is, okay, for those who don't know, I'm Korean-American, and this is a big freaking deal. All right, continue. Wow, I'm yeah, just just, the, the AP yeah. story is, is seriously like seven minutes old. Wow, this is going to be huge. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> where, where are you, you heard it here first. Integrity? Right. That's heard huge the implications biggest... for this Red Dawn remake, which is sitting in a vault somewhere. He had the biggest collection of, of movies, of like videotapes and DVDs on Earth. Yeah, that's right. And he, yeah, yeah, he's he was, like a, he was a, a tremendous consumer of Western pop culture. And so that, like, I'd like to believe that he was an overthinking listener. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is this is only going to hurt like holiday movie sales. Like our, our economy is good affected by this. The whole DVD yes. market was being propped up by Kim Jong Il's purchases. God, they, yeah, if you've ever passed through Chinatown and seen some bootleg copy of something, somewhere, I wish that guy had used the affiliate link on overthinking it to buy from Amazon. <laughs> so, guys, you know what this means? There's only one option. Which is uh, Kim Jong Il Ghost Protocol? Ghost Protocol. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Annihilation, Oblivion, Omega Factor. Um. So, uh, sorry, Mark. We were we were actually in the we were in the middle of something. Oh yeah. So it's so normal that every every building, no matter how humble, now has a server room. You know, and that the server room needs to be uh, needs to be compromised um, somehow. So but that- they show th- they sure and and. But they do that with 
you know, the simple act of physical aggression, you, you get into the space and it's difficult to get into that space. But once you're yeah. there, it seems fairly trivial to them. Like, Whereas in, in reality, like if you want to cripple a server room, all you really have to do is cut out the air conditioning to it. Actually, that's a plot point in the movie. Is that true? Yeah. Schechner wins! Fatality. <laughs> I Annihilation. I'm too much leverage. <laughs> derive action movies from first principles, people. There. <laughs> you know, I, I, I almost hate to ask this question, but like, I'm looking at the, the, the posters, and he's uh, like climbing up the side of the building in broad daylight. Isn't this an extremely conspicuous thing to do? It's an enormous building, and he's a very small man. So like, the idea is that, like, yes, I'm going to break into the building in, like, the middle of the day, but, like, just nobody's going to notice that I'm jumping along the side of, like, this large glass office building. Yeah, didn't they catch the New York Times guy who did that? And, like, that's yeah. a city where they're famous for not looking up. They started on the, like, 100-something before already. Yeah, it's uh, right. Yeah, he'd he'd be a a dot from the a dot from the ground. It is supposed to be that that tallest building in in Dubai, right? That was the Burj Dubai, but then was renamed renamed it's the Burj. It's always the tallest. Bu- you know, it's funny. I remember a long time ago watching Leverage with uh, Catherine Zeta Jones and Sean Connery, and the whole you know uh, Leverage and Entrapment. They want to break yeah. into the then tallest building in the world, which I believe is also in, in this Malaysia, right? Kuala Lumpur, yeah. Yeah, the, the Patronus Towers. But it's like whatever the tallest building in the world, somehow that's where you got to break into yeah. to like uh, to like save the world. Okay, yeah, there was that. You can see like old 1890s cinematographs where they're going to break into the ten, tor- ten, 10 story tall Macy's in Times Square. <laughs> yeah, like New York. Yeah. <laughs> it's on thirty. Yeah, it's on yeah. 34th and, then, and, then, and then barnacle box. And- <laughs> like mission incubable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I totally, I totally cut Josh off. I think I had the exact same joke. So, and yours was better. So, just uh, I'm glad you beat me. You know, what I was wondering about the rogue actor thing, though. I mean, yes, like a lot of it is that you don't want to offend all the countries uh, that like by making any one country the bad guy, you can't really sell the movie in that country. And there is something to that. But like, isn't it also sort of in the modern post-September 11th world, the idea that like what people are afraid of is not so much that like a country is going to declare war on us, but like a small group of radicals is going to sort of destabilize everything. Um, because like you've seen a lot of movies like that. There's this one. I mean, the one that jumped out of me earlier is X-Men First Class, which sort of rewrites the Cuban Missile Crisis as being not so much that the USA and the USSR are are, are want to destroy each other, but sort of like there's like a secret, uh, you know, uh, a shadow group that's sort of pushing them to the brink of war. And then, I mean, I've, I've been playing a lot of Modern Warfare 3, which is also sort of about like, yes, the United States and Russia are at war, but it's not really like, you know, it's it's you know, it, it's that 1% of the people, not the 99% of the people that want to be at war. So they're sort of being manipulated into that situation. And, I mean, I think one of the big uh, espionage movies in the last couple of years was Salts with uh, Angelina Jolie, which the whole thing is that there's this Russian splinter group and they're sort of trying to create this war, but, like, maybe the sort of meat and potatoes Russian government doesn't really want that and it's sort of this radical. So I, mean, I, I, I sort of see this coming up again and again, the idea that, like, it's not like the Russian government at large or any government at large is this sort of like this this uh this extremist uh element that wants the war because it benefits the extremist element not because like these two countries really want to fight each other 
And and as right. as Dave points out in our our back channel chat here, let us not yeah. forget, uh, you know, the most yeah, profound in the most profound statement on international <laughs> relations in recent memory. A little film I like to call Triple X, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what other people called it as well. <laughs> and, that's what its uh, name was actually. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. that's what it was called, and which which contains a little. A little- uh, a little which, sleeper art house by the name of Triple X. Yeah, <laughs> art house thriller. Um, no, that was called. That movie was called like Boarding Gate. It also had Asia Argento in it, uh, <laughs> though though it contained a little less stripper pole and uh, her dancing on it. And it did not contain the uh, just the worst line of film writing ever that I I think is glorious in its badness. Uh, when uh, when um, Xander and the bad guy are done doing business buying stolen cars or something uh he said uh, the bad guy says work is over now we party and he calls out to the strippers outside he calls bitches come which uh i'm surprised that made it past standards and practices because it is usually usually the misogyny of the action genre is a little more covert than that right what is this? What do you mean, like for the studio, or is there like a movie regulatory? Yeah, for the for the studio. I mean, these, the you know, these things get passed. These things are made by giant corporations, and they get passed by yeah. not like censors, but they they get passed by lawyers and get passed by people who you know um, who. Uh, you know that this that this you know tiny little hate crime of a moment could uh, could get past a lot of you know, hey, a lot of it, professionals. It's not, a, it's not a hate crime. It's it's sort of a love crime, right? It's not bitches go back to Africa, right? It's it's bitches come. Right? He, he clearly wants to wants to spend time with the bitches. David. Well, David. <laughs> It probably doesn't. <laughs> this is a moment when I'm very glad that people probably can't tell our voices apart. <laughs> uh, gosh, racism. Yeah, well, Matt, so, like, what's involved, like, let's kind of ring the changes a little bit on your suggestion. I mean, it, what's involved is an idea that, like, international relations are always at a state of, of extreme tension, but also stasis. It's, it's yeah, like and, people are on the brink, and, and uh, just a, a feather will tip the scale, right? And, and I, mean, I want to revise that and go back some way, because in the James Bond films, a sort of classic Golden Age one, there was this sort of organization chaos uh, led by uh, proto-Dr. Evil. Uh, I believe I, I actually know his name is Ernst Blofeld is the leader yeah. of, of chaos um, because there was even a feeling in the 60s that like, look, we all have nuclear weapons. Nobody wants to start this war. And so that what you're afraid of is not so much that like the president of the United States is just going to pick up the phone one day and just be like, you know what, launch the weapons. But that somebody is going to sort of like tip that scale and destabilize everything. Yeah. And so that, like, is, I mean, I think which is also the plot of Doctor Strangelove, right? Yeah, exactly. Doctor Strangelove, of course, is a parody of, of Failsafe, which right. is about like, you know, what if a bomber accidentally goes to bomb Russia, and then like, how do you how do you deal with that situation? And the idea is that like, there's if one little thing goes wrong, or one rogue agent sort of pushes the scale too far in any direction, then it's sort of like the 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 rationality that's keeping us from bombing each other suddenly unravels. And I, I mean, I think I think that's sort of like a very, a very modern fear, and it's I mean, it's it's been in movies for like the last like fifty years, and but it's it's coming much more to the forefront now that it's it's 
th- there's I mean I think I, I think exactly what you said that like it's hard to sort of single out one country as the enemy so that it becomes much more interesting to sort of pose the idea that like there's one group that's sort of uh, manipulating everybody and we're all just sort of sheep being herded towards the apocalypse. Personally, I or, think Hollywood should really just pick a country that uh, doesn't do much for sales and just make them the enemy of everything. Like Botswana should be just destabilizing <laughs> the world in every movie from now on. Yeah. The, the, new, the New Jersey of the international political stage, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's actually, so to not uh, Blinky's point, but Rather's earlier point, but what Rather and, and Mark were talking about is actually – um, and I'm not really well trained enough in the mathematics to go into it in much detail, but but it's sort of an interesting phenomenon that has cropped up as a result of the higher degree of information that you know the average citizen is is, is made available to. Um, and and so you know, a friend of mine, a guy named Eric Schultes, wrote a paper about this during the 2000 election. Um, it, you know, it comes out of uh, sort of graph theory and information theory. It basically, says that like you know, since since a, a given individual, since a given person is interested in a lot of different things. And they may hold certain core things more important to them than other things. You know, take the example of the person who just votes based upon his or her views about, say, abortion. Um, since they have more access to all the information that's available about all the other things that they may be interested in, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult for anyone to make a really firm statement about anything at all without offending some subsection of the populace, even in a very remote way. And, and this is why, I mean, he, he argues that this is why in, say, like political debates, it's really difficult to get any politician, any, anyone who's savvy enough to, to make it to sort of the national and international stage, it's why it's hard to get them to make a very concrete statement about how they feel or what policies sure, they're you can Sure, you, you can't even pander anymore because you're going to do it yeah. wrong, for, or at least you're going to do it wrong for some subset exactly. of the like, populace. You, you literally... You cannot make a statement about like the value-added tax without a offending economists that have certain theories against the value-added tax, and b indirectly through some bizarre route, uh, pissing off people who have certain views about abortion or about uh, you know, or, or, or you know have racist leanings and so forth. It's it's just really difficult to get anyone to be totally disconnected from anything. So I, I think this sort of um, this problem with you know assigning a single state as being the rogue state has sort of a similar problem. Like even, even if um, you know your French viewers aren't aren't on average going to be pissed off at calling Botswana evil, there are going to be enough people with like ties to Botswana everywhere that on mass you'll get an equivalent of, of France's worth of people disgruntled at the movie. Yeah, and the the combination of that and the kind of soundbitization of everything, which is also kind of concomitant with the uh, w- with the increasing information density of our lives, right? Like uh, yeah. the fact that there's so much information that what breaks through is in these these kind of little easy to remember uh, chunks. That this has something to do with the the debasing of our politics. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So are Swedish professors going to boycott this film? I can't. I can't make a definite statement either way about that, Josh. <laughs> I, whether uh, whether they should, I, you know, we speaking, have. Speaking of global politics, quick, I was. I'm curious, like, what does this guy want? Because Sweden, there was like there was a lone crazy person in Sweden who did a lot of damage this year. Oh yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like, 
was what know, he wants. Well, he's he's become he's become convinced that uh, global global thermonuclear war has a role in world affairs by sort of. Uh, in decreasing the population and sort of ushering in a great era of peace. He's he's become convinced that like uh, that a, an, an enormously destructive, uh, terrible global war uh, will will uh, lead to an era of peace, and so he's going to start the world blowing itself up. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> also, also the plot to the season of Dexter. <laughs> it's fairly inconsequential to the movie, really. Which. <laughs> Let's be honest. It by and large exists uh, for that amazing stunt scene on the uh, on on the tower, which is fantastic. Go yeah, see it. that's that's great. But then, I mean, uh, keeping with the kind of low tech, uh, the kind of the low tech thing, the the last uh, action set piece takes place in a parking garage. You know, a, a sort of a an mecha- amazingly high tech and like automated parking garage. But yes, the parking garage. But it's you know, it's it's cars. It's this you know hundred century old technology that you know, and it's like large pieces of metal sort of flying flying around, uh, flying around the screen. Well, when the North Koreans invade, uh, they'll fly <laughs> large pieces of metal around the overthinking its server room uh, until that when <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, is that the most tortured segue ever? <laughs> Until then, you can join the conversation uh, by emailing podcast at overthinking.com, by calling 203-285-6401, or by leaving a, show, uh, leaving a comment on the show notes for this episode on the site. What site, you ask? Why, it's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the end of the world. We subject uh, all kinds of action movies. We subject Anarchy 99. We uh, subject the popular <laughs> culture <laughs> to a level of scrutiny. Level of scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably Work is over. Now we podcast. I was far, away, far and away the most famous and popular piece of music written in 5-4 time. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask, is the version in the movie 5-4? Because they used a 4-4 version in the, uh, in the first it time. It is. I was, I was heartened to say that it is in 5-4. It is in 5-4. Yeah, that's good. Well, some things in this world still work right. <laughs> they still have toys and Cracker Jacks boxes, and they still put MI's theme in 5-4.